0: Hey, I'm here with John, and uh, today we're going to conclude our four-part series. And uh, with today, we're going to talk a little bit about, then, what is the resolution, or at least a direction for resolution. And I think the, the, the problem that we presented uh, that has become clear in the various movements is that you have faith uh, pitted against reason, uh, or vice versa, reason pitted against faith, so that in... One instance in uh, various forms of liberal theology uh, that reason in some way leaves faith as a kind of complete interior exercise or a feeling of dependence upon God. Uh, And what we're getting then in, I think, the, uh, you know, what to call this thing, the post-liberalism radical orthodoxy uh, Bartian theology, or even uh the Nouvelle theology coming out of the catholic uh uh you know the revisionist understanding and uh of Thomas Aquinas, I think that they've all hit upon then uh they've seen the problem, and what we have then is an attempt to get beyond the kind of dualism between faith and reason and how we might do that and the various formulations. Is, is that a is that a good picture John of the problem?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's and whether or not we're going to solve that problem, we're at least going to talk about or speak towards uh what has been done as a response to the secular theologies that we're left with after uh modernism and uh, be able to maybe point towards a way forward. And,
0: uh, you know, there's been, I, I just, actually I have to say, last night I sat down, I was reading Steve Long's book on talking about God. And he, if, you, if there is a, one reference that you want to look at that kind of is a neat summary of the problem and the various uh, approaches to the resolution, at this point I can't think of a, of a better summation uh, of the various trends, and and uh, Long is so, he's a very, a very ironic sort of uh, spirit that, uh, you know, uh, uh, is very fair to all these ideas, and I think what he's getting at is that, I, I think that certainly Ludwig Wittgenstein uh, and Thomas Aquinas, uh, and, a, and a revision, you know, a revised understanding of a reading, that is that, uh, a, a kind of post-tridentine uh, reading of Aquinas that you have people coming out and picturing Aquinas as if he is uh, some sort of rational theologian, and of course the Nouvelle theology is objecting to that. And then in the, uh, in the post-liberals, uh, Lindbeck, uh, Hans Frey, uh, and Fry and I, I would say with all these guys, they're reading Karl Barth, but they're reading Karl Barth in a particular fashion. In other words, it's uh, Barth theology is always it's always going to be contested. And with all of these, we could point out, you know, various weaknesses. But I think that in a sense, they've all seen the inadequacy of a, a kind of split, uh, and what Barth is doing is trying to get, you know, uh, beyond. The liberal theology that he was raised in, and obviously that's the post-liberalism in Yale. But John, I'm doing all the talking. Run down for us a little bit, then uh, uh, what you see the significance of post-liberalism and and uh, it, its resolution of the problem.
1: Well, uh, actually, at first, I think we might speak a little bit to how the different movements that you mentioned fit together. So, why would we lump together uh, Catholic thinkers and not just the Nouvelle Theology, but actually, you know, von Balthasar, Bernard Lonergan, uh, Karl Rahner would fit into this group of people who are trying to look back and retrieve what the the metaphysics or the ontology of the early Church and bring that forward. Uh, in a way that it applies today. I think the post-liberal guys are doing something similar to that. Radical orthodoxy is drawing off of both of those traditions, uh, both post-liberalism and off of the uh, 20th century Catholic thought. And so it's not just that we're lumping them all together because they're reactionary, but actually the way that they approach the problem of modernity and what has happened in theology, a split between faith and reason, and then ultimately either a reaction towards fundamentalism, which is going to privilege uh, maybe even a type of blind faith, or uh, what has happened in liberalism, where everything is sort of reducible to what is rational. Um, and faith sort of supports that in ways, but um, you know, some people coming out of the liberal movement really don't even find that they have any need for faith at all. Uh, What these movements have in common is that they're all trying to retrieve a root or the root of Christian faith. So they're doing a type of resourcement or resourcement theology. They're retrieving the participatory ontology that the church held from the early church period, even before Nicaea, all the way through uh, the Middle Ages. Most Christian thinkers were thinking in the same terms about what reality is and how that reality corresponds to God. And then with retrieving that, what happens is, I think in these what we might call confessional theologies, is they are non-foundational. So they see foundationalism as one of the main problems of modernity. And so rather than trying to argue over and against Uh, whether it might be mathematics or the natural sciences, as to why theology still has a place at the table and trying to create a foundation for that. They turn back to an earlier way of thinking and just say that actually theology is a discourse that's as basic to human life is asking questions about how does the human body work or how does the world work. Those questions about uh, that we might think of as natural theology or in the, uh, not natural theology, natural Mm -hmm. sciences, or in the realm of uh, physics and chemistry and the more hard sciences. They're also ecumenical. So we can mention this broad range of movements from different faith traditions because they begin to all realize that Uh, the core of Christianity, perhaps those things held in common by the early church councils, um, those are still held in common by most of, especially the high church movements that are existing at this point in time. So there's a lot of pushes in the 20th century towards an ecumenicism, especially between the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Anglican Communion. And then finally, and I think this is... Helpful to know why are they doing this is they're concerned with social issues, so both in radical orthodoxy and in post liberalism, you have a heavy engagement with the times, what's going on, current issues uh, so you get somebody like Stanley Harrowawas coming out of uh, Yale and being influenced by the post liberals and he starts to advocate for a type of realized kingdom of God experience in this life in which we have to support a peaceable kingdom or a peaceable vision for that kingdom, which actually means we have to be peaceable. And that's sort of a radical shift from what theologians would have been saying just a hundred years before him. And radical orthodoxy also has especially taken on, um, you know, the realm of economics and John Milbank is very critical um, when he looks at how, especially our Western societies have been built upon a type of capitalism that he sees is really just a, a product of uh, modernity, a product of the Reformation, also a product of the Enlightenment. And, and, and as much as it is a product of those things is trying to establish a secular that is really just a myth. So, uh, but the idea that you could just make money and greed doesn't really have anything to do with who you are and uh, those types of ideas that just wouldn't have flown uh, previous to the Protestant Reformation, especially, uh, so I think those things are what they have in common, and then they they do turn towards um, formulating a speculative theology that links the doctrines of the church and uh, the key doctrines that I'm thinking of that the church has almost always agreed on to what does it mean to be a community of God? What does it mean to be the people of God?
0: Yeah. The, the you know, this may all sound a bit academic, but what you're describing then is with the split between faith and reason uh, there is then a kind of abandonment of politics and cap, you know, the realm of economics Mm and uh, just social justice uh, to the realm of, uh, uh, of reason or an abandonment of politics and of course the disasters of the 20th century uh, you know, this is what Bart sees in Nazi Germany. This is that that uh, the theological liberalism uh, is a complete disaster because it abandons uh, the 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 realm of the public discourse. Then uh, to to reason per se, and faith becomes for many a privatized, you know, interior, otherworldly kind mm. of uh, affair.
1: Yeah, you you just sparked an interesting thought that we might uh, try to run down is uh, these confessional theologies all have context in the history of the 20th century. So Karl Barth, reflecting back on his life, says that there was a day in 1914 that was the darkest day of his life, and it was when he realized that, um, I guess, all of his professors that he had had at university uh, teaching theology and divinity had signed um a manifesto supporting the kaiser's war world war 1 and so he just he sees a problem in theological liberalism at least german idealism um even then at the outset of world war 1 and realizes that it's not just a failure it's not just a moral failure that could be unhinged from uh, our philosophical and theological failings. And
0: in the United States, you know, this is Hauerwitz's uh, fascination with and rejection ultimately of, of uh, Niebuhr, uh, mm-hmm. is, is that Niebuhr really in, in, is a kind of, uh, you know, an example, maybe the best example, of that, and and Hauerwas's theology, I think, is very much then an attempt to recover uh, a kind of holistic understanding of the role of of theology
1: in this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think so. So you know, Harawas himself uh, is he's writing, and he's also engaging John Howard Yoder, I mean, in person, and uh, both of them. Will have recourse to using examples from the 20th century that support pacifism, but you could think of uh, the civil rights movement. Um, they actually John Howard Yoder Moore will even write on Gandhi and what the similarities might be there and where Gandhi is drawing those from, Christianity. But just the idea that, wow, that actually worked. So uh, putting nonviolence into practice has worked even in the last century, even though most people don't think that's a very practical thing to do. So I I guess the point that we're making is that these theologies are very historically grounded and rooted and have a sense of history. And in a way, that itself is a reaction to uh, modern Theology or modernity and theology, a theology that would um, sort of try to make history the problem. So, can you know the historical Jesus? Well, no, you just have all the stuff that's written about him instead. And so, history is is in many ways, for a lot of uh, Protestant liberals, a huge Mm -hmm. issue with having true Christian faith. But all of these confessional theologies are actually real would rather just situate themselves in history and draw off a tradition. So I think it is a turn back towards the tradition of the church as a real authority for doing Yeah, theology. it gets
0: repeated again and again, and it's still, I know, repeated by theological liberals. Well, it doesn't matter if we find the bones of Jesus, you know, because the resurrection. So what they're doing, yes. they're still tied into the, the idea that truth is... And, and maybe that's the, the, the key thing here, is that what people have come to, to recognize that when you separate faith and reason, or what is actually taking place is that power is really the dominant force, whether it's political or you know, what, whatever the nature, mm-hmm. and truth then becomes subservient to power, as is obvious in the various disasters of the 20th century. But even in your, you know, uh, the uh, as you've described it with Calvin and Luther, uh especially Calvin's doctrine of sovereignty that what you have in in uh protestantism is a shift then uh, a subtle shift that took place then in understanding God primarily in terms of his sovereign power and in a sense that this is the uh the abandonment of truth or or uh, a very subtle then and by truth, you know, when we talk about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, uh, the, there, there is then a kind of loss, then, of the sense of Christ as foundation, and put in its place is the pure power, the will to, you know, this is Nietzsche Nietzsche's point, the will to power. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that that's true, and I, I mean it goes back even into the Middle Ages as a direct reaction against uh, the classical vision of the world, and even and we've run that down in previous podcasts. So I think that is definitely um, a strain that runs all the way through the late Middle Ages into modernity, and it seems to be that you have these theologies in the twentieth century. Uh, Not just reacting against that, but truly trying to find an alternative to thinking of God in terms of power. So out of uh, these theologies, what's interesting, and this would include more people that wouldn't necessarily fit in the confessional theologies that we're talking about. But there is a push and a turn towards wanting to re-understand the atonement in nonviolent terms. And that's been sort of across the board. You have people doing that, and of course you still have the other side wanting to hold towards a Calvinist penal substitution. But I think that's another one of the implications of the influence of these movements the, that we're talking about. Maybe the
0: one of the things to touch upon, and that is that what you get in uh, the Protestant notion of uh, you know the fall of man and original sin is the idea of Uh, the you know total depravity and with total depravity then there is then a kind of split I think between notions a necessary split between notions of faith and reason that is that uh, in some way there is an incapacity that is only going to you know this is partly what Bart is accused of and and maybe the the focus Mm -hmm. in Bart maybe it's too much there uh as hawsworth and others have demonstrated that that it may be a misreading to to simply you know that hawsworth is with the grain of the universe is rereading karl barth as a natural theologian of course which on the surface barth <laughs> would have said nine you know not but but the way that hawsworth yep. is doing that is is to to show that uh there is a reading then Uh, that necessarily, uh, in in a sense, restores uh, the possibility of bringing faith and reason together, that reason then is an outworking of faith, and faith then is is dependent upon reason. And when we say reason, partly, you know, a, a key part of that is a philosophical reason. So it is not an abandonment. Uh, as Bart is often, you know, accused of a kind of ghettoization of theology, uh, and Harris, what Harris is doing is saying, well, no, actually, uh, it, it is a recovery, and whether he's adequate in that or you know, you could you could argue about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, he's interesting anyway, and so uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, in one sense, you can almost let go of, well, how true is that to a Bartian project? Well, if it's not true to a Bartian project, it should be. And I, I think that's what it means to do, you know, uh, Carl Bart has said, or some, one of his students have said it, he wasn't trying to make people just like him. He wanted to encourage people to take the tools, uh, that he had laid out there from his break with Protestant liberalism and go do more theology. And so I think that, um, whether or not that's a, you know, Wass's picture is fully in Bart, it certainly is still um, an outworking of Bart's theology and an outworking of post-liberalism that I think there is this, and all I would say it is, and that's not to belittle it, but is a shift back towards an ontology that truly has the real world participating in God. Um, and, you know, you have to be a Christian to... Be able to appreciate that fully, but just to say that we do live and have our movement in God's grace. You've mentioned
0: God's grace, and this is one of the things that comes up: the idea of pure nature, or you know, and this is what uh, uh, Bart is. And of course, there are Bart is correct in identifying certain strains in Catholic theology that are advocating a pure nature, that is, uh, a, a a capacity to reason apart from the grace of God, so that there is an accessibility of God on the basis of uh, pure nature or pure reason, uh, devoid of, of God's grace. And go ahead, speak to that a little bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to address what you're asking a little bit differently, just because I think uh, it may be a little oh, bit easier God. for me to answer. <laughs> that, that's just such a difficult question, and I don't know enough. Um, there's the whole, uh, you know, this is what Balthazar is trying is pointing out to Bart and his his book on Karl Bart, and um, that's just difficult uh, reading. But I could speak more broadly to the Catholic turn in the 20th century. especially in the thought of Balthazar and Bernard Lonergan, is that up until that point, you have what are called the manual Thomists. And these are people who are reading um, late medieval manuals on Thomas Aquinas rather Mm -hmm. than Thomas Aquinas. And they are sort of in this nominalist, voluntarist uh, vein of thinking so what has happened, and this is, this is true in Western theology almost as a whole, this is the way Protestants are thinking too, is that um, if God is the one who saves us and he is doing the saving and we're going to have free will, then there has to be some extra space for us to be working where God isn't working on our own salvation. Or you could just go the other route and say, well, we don't actually have free will and God is doing it all. But it's a type of zero-sum game so that if if God is working in one area of our lives, then we necessarily aren't working in that area. And if we are able to make free choices or um, if we are working in an area of our lives, then that part of our lives has to be completely dependent uh, from what God is doing. And that's just a bad way to frame up the question. And in the 20th century, you have people realizing that. And they realize it because not only are they just turning to Thomas Aquinas, he, he gets a lot of our attention. And that's because he's written so prolifically and he writes so clearly to the point, um, and especially in the Summa. But what has happened is they're starting to locate Thomas Aquinas back in that tradition of classical theology that runs through Dionysius and Augustine especially because Aquinas is relying on them. But this is in common with other thinkers such as Irenaeus or uh, Gregory of Nazianzus and these other early theologians that the only way that they picture Christianity is in the terms or in the, with reference to or in the context of theosis. That what God is doing isn't necessarily just saving us from our sin, but God is actually working to make us more like him. He's bringing creation to its fulfillment. And so as they begin to recapture that vision uh, for what Christianity is, they begin to realize, oh, Thomas Aquinas actually fits within that tradition. And I think once you are aware of the patristic tradition, uh, it's obvious that Aquinas fits with them. That's what he's saying. So uh, what that means is then, if we're going to talk about human free will and we're not a nominalist or voluntarist, we just have a more limited understanding or we're a little bit more humble about what it means to be human. And that well, this references more the whole debate about faith or reason. Well, I mean, okay, let's say that you could have reason that's just – only proportionate to your human nature. And Lonergan will play with this idea. So he says, let's take the idea of pure nature and pretend like that really is the case. So he's not necessarily against it. He doesn't think it's the case, but he thinks it's possible. The way he argues for that, though, isn't the way a modernist would, because he says even if that were the case, that you would have these uh, abilities proportionate to who you naturally are not only would that be not enough to save you but that wouldn't be enough for you to truly know god either because the only uh, what would be proportionate to human nature would be our ability to have freedom to make choices that are here and now but we could not set ourselves on a course that would ultimately end in uh, our deification or our theosis because even who we are apart from being sinners is such that we're not able to achieve god and he uses the latin phrase udi in est god in and of himself apart from god's operative grace in our lives so it's a it's a way of coming at the question that says well that's you know sort of the whole modern project in mm-hmm. doing that was irrelevant because of the limitations of what it would even mean to have a pure nature and the
0: point is that that's a misreading of Aquinas's project in the first place, and this is the criticism that is brought against Bart's reading, as I understand it, uh, is that he is in some—well,
1: I think we can. Well, that, that yeah, in some
0: way he's picturing uh, Aquinas as falling into what the interpreters, uh, as you're describing the the, the Suarez and uh, and others have interpreted him, yeah, yeah. uh, and that.
1: Is a misunderstanding,
0: perhaps?
1: Yeah, and I would say that, of course, the problem in the twentieth century, though, was even greater than that. I mean, Bart's conversation got caught up in Thomistic theology, but uh, really, what had happened is that's the way that people were reading the entire Christian tradition and continue to do so. And so, what is? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. And so, what is regained is um, not just oh, we now can read Thomas Aquinas again. Uh, I think what is gained is really an ability to look back to the early church for our uses as we do original theology and we do creative theology that is actually engaging our current context. And that's a very 20th century idea that fits into uh, these confessional theology. There's theologies.
0: a kind of a, a subtle thing, and I, I I'll, let me see if I can articulate it, uh, that you know, what you're getting with the, the whole discussion as it's couched, whether it's nominalism or you know a kind of Calvinist notion of of sovereignty and with the focus on power and and, and as you just said it, there is a it's like they've uh, there is you've missed what the whole point of the New Testament is, and there there is no subject yeah. that this doesn't touch upon. Um, the the shift in what Christ has done is to move us from, you know, in Pauline terms, from law. And and with law, you can just, and of course, we're not talking about Mosaic law. We're just talking about the, the will to power in a Nietzschean sense. That is, this law is we would take it up and make it our own. So that what you're really discuss you know, this is Paul's picture in Romans uh, 7 and 8, that the human predicament is to be stuck in realms of power Uh, in the notion that uh, we can sort of power our way through the law to God and of course that is the human uh, failure that is being caught up in death drive and and what conversion means in part is then a shift from imagining that we can work in the realm of the law to working in the truth of Christ and that that we, to to confuse those two things, to still confuse what we're doing in Christ mm-hmm. as being in the realm of power is to, in fact, displace the the truth of Christ for what he has come, he's come to secure, uh, n- not the, the power of God, but the truth, love. You know, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, yes. and the life yeah. in that you know that system uh that understanding and i think that's what all of the in in a sense that what you're getting uh in post liberalism in uh with how was is a, a a strong turn then to the the key role of the person and work of christ that is if there is truth and embodied truth uh that is, you know, you maintain with Christ then both God's transcendent. It's not like we've, uh, you know, that God is inaccessible, but he is transcendent, nor is God emptied out into the world into a kind of complete eminence, which is, you know, those are sort of the two choices you get, uh, is that either uh, an emptying of God, you know, complete eminence, you know, this is Hegel. This is really the outworking of of uh, Nietzsche and and of, uh, but it's also then uh, Kant with his picture of God uh, in some way removed from us. The two problems are the same problem, and what the resolution to that problem is, it it really comes to the heart of the human predicament. In both instances, we haven't seen or understood the necessity for Christ, then, uh, to reveal God to us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. So that, um, and even in Jesus' work of revealing God to us, a part of what's being revealed is our absolute dependence upon God. Uh, for our humanity, even to be human. We're dependent upon God. And I think that is what the Enlightenment is rejecting, is being naive or simple or, uh, you know, almost... That's, that faith is too superstitious. Mm-hmm. So you get into a thinker like... I mean, Kierkegaard isn't directly relevant to this conversation, but in another sense he is, and that he's influencing everybody that we're talking about. And he repeatedly will... Um, accuse the Hegelians in Denmark and sort of these um, what we would now just think of modern philosopher, you know, we would think of them as being rooted in modernity and they're just doing philosophy and trying to call it Christianity. But what they've done as he's saying is that they have tamed Christianity, but in so taming or civilizing Christianity, uh, they've lost it all so that it's just a purely human project. And so he, over and over again in his writing, is repeatedly trying to wake us up to the fact that we are actually dependent upon God for our for our being, for who we are, and how we ought to then live in such a way that we're able to grow, but we're growing into uh, the image and likeness of God. Well, all that sounds just very—that um, sounds very— anti-Nicene, in the sense of before the Nicene Council, you're talking about people like Irenaeus and uh, even Athanasius as you're leading up towards uh, the Second Council of Constantinople, Constantinople, the Second Ecumenical Council. You have the early church just repeating this phrase over and over again, and that is that God has become man so man Mm -hmm. can become God. And so they really are emphasizing this identification that God would identify with us so that we might grow and change. And what that's describing is an ontology where not only do we participate in who God is, but as we participate in who God is, we truly understand ourselves as God's creation.
0: And the the categories, you know, you bring up Kierkegaard, of course, what Kierkegaard is accused of and what, you know, the the, the, the way that people are going to frame this whole discussion is they're going to say, well, you can either be a Fideist or you can be a rationalist. You can either be a you know Mm -hmm. and of course this is part of Long's point. He's saying, well, what you what happens in a proper understanding of post liberalism or that actually the categories begin to break down because Fideism is the notion, Mm -hmm. first of all, that there is this, you know, a kind of privatized this is again where Wittgenstein enters in you know that there is a private language or and with a private language the idea of a you know either interior to myself or in completely interior mm-hmm. to a, a particular group of people and the you know this is how was and many people in their encounter with Wittgenstein, what they're seeing is then the impossibility of this kind of private language as it's as it's been formulated, and with that then the very notion of Fideism, the, the very notion that we could arrive at an understanding uh that is insular that is interior that is cut off from the world uh it it's uh you know it it's it's really just made a, a the, the the category breaks down but so does yeah it just Uh, So does the other, you know, and that is that, oh, well, you can do reason or rationalism uh, apart from Mm -hmm. faith. Well, no, that breaks down, too, because the the idea that, you know, what what you're getting in uh, various, you know, uh, philosophical approaches is the notion, oh, we're going to figure out how language functions or we're going to figure out how it does it and before we can say what it does. Part of what Wittgenstein is doing, I think, is saying, well, you may not understand the how entirely, but that doesn't mean that the what of it. That is that God has come to us uh, in Christ, that here is the logos, here is the completion of, you know, here's what human reason and logic and language points us toward. It doesn't mean that we could completely apprehend how that is so, but We can apprehend what it does, that we can come to the signified without completely understanding how the signifier works.
1: That's right. Yeah, I think so. And so it is a turn towards being able to offer descriptions that are meaningful for what it means to be human, but also like ethics. So not just in the realm of ontology and what is ours, but also in uh, what should we do because of all of this? And, um, you know, I think that actually just what's interesting is Millbank, especially has noted that that is directly in line with the early Christian understanding of the world, that it's a gift. So um, you have a, we have a givenness. Our existence is given to us. The existence of other people are given to us. The existence of the world is given to us. And so he begins to construct a theology in terms of gift. And that makes sense in uh, a Christian uh, paradigm. It makes sense, especially when you're talking about grace according to the way the early church did and so on. So I think that's unique uh, about what the, if we're talking about confessional theologies again, what they're able to offer is unique in explaining what it means to be human so that central to all of the projects that we've listed is also a theological anthropology
0: uh and and again you know what the the two choices they're balancing this out it's not all pure anthropology you know this is a Fuhrbach's point oh it's all a projection well bart was very much taken with Fuhrbach. and in a sense he he continues to you know, all of these, they're, 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 they recognize the Furbachian kind of problem that God is just a projection of man, and so we're just doing anthropology. So the one failure of theological uh, liberalism might be to make it pure anthropology. Uh, but what they're saying is, well, no, you're, you, you have to take into account an anthropology. You have to take into account ethics but it's not a cutting off of that God truly has spoken to us in Christ.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's a feel. So it's, what's changed there, I think the shift that you're describing, is actually, just to fall back on Milbank, two different ontologies. So um, one ontology isn't even able to address particulars Uh, in the world as having any connection to universals. So when we think in terms of universals or what there is in large categories, well, that that must in some way just be something that we do with language. Uh, Whereas Milbank is saying, no, that's not the way that people have even thought for uh, most of the history of philosophy or especially the history of theology. And that when we do engage in particulars in the world, whether that be ourselves, other people, um, even objects, that's not disconnected from a reality that God God has given to us. And so what it means to understand ourselves is that we understand ourselves in light of who God is. Behold the man. Well, that would be our immediate point of access. (laughs) So that uh, you know, Christ is making sense of things for us. He's explaining or exegeting the Bible. So that to us. What,
0: you know, again, the, the what you're describing is that in a, and this is partly what some people criticize Milbank for in imagining a kind of a Platonic universe, and of course, a rereading of Plato. Uh, that, but what your the the picture of a uh, uh, you know of a dualism in which truth then would be. Uh, a kind of disembodied uh, otherworldly truth uh, you know the Cartesian or the that, uh, you know, Leibniz's notion of the blo- broad ugly ditch of history the truth in some way I'm sorry I'm blessing. Blessing. Blessing sorry uh, yeah. is uh, the, the truth then is posited as otherworldly and drained of any particulars including the particulars of human beings uh and so that's what
1: that well or yeah or truth is yeah or denied. there is no truth yeah. <laughs> so, so, and yeah. and ironically,
0: Christian theology has has satisfied its itself with working within those frameworks, either a kind of platonic mm-hmm. disembodied notion, so that Christ is reduced uh you know, and I'm never convinced that this is completely just theological. Liberalism, I just think it's kind of what happens across the board with pietism. You know, this is really Kant's answer.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it was happening yeah. before that, even. So, uh, you know, I think, and you do this, you describe this really well in your project, that it's not a problem that's limited to any particular theological movement. This is just the human, this is what humans tend to do because of the human condition. So, if we're not uh, actively pursuing God in a way that is both biblical and fits with the, tr- the Christian tradition. What we would tend to do is to be dualists uh,
0: and, and fall in, and, and so and with the dualism, then everybody falls into one of the two sides of that. Either you're, you know, you fall into the transcendent side or the immanent side, and in a sense, you can just break up all of theology, but not just you know philosophy and but of course this comes down to human psychology uh this comes down to the split within ourselves uh that we are split we're alienated and our entire drive uh then is to overcome that alienation so that the philosophical project the theological project if it's subsumed into this Well, it's missed the whole point uh, that in Christ, uh, we're no longer working with those categories. We now have the way, the truth, and the life available to us. I think that's bartians you know, the whole idea of a Christocentric uh, theology, that that this is the place that you begin, Uh, and you cannot you know, if it was ever imagined that you could begin somewhere else and arrive at Christ, uh, you know, that there is that reading in both Protestant, you know, the apologetics or, you know, the, the, uh, the way that the apologetic project is often pictured. Well, we'll reason our way there. Or in the Catholic mm-hmm. uh, revision, you know, the misunderstanding, I think, of a, a, a Thomistic uh uh, theology.
1: Well, it's a neo-scholastic. It's neo-scholasticism. It's uh, the it, it's what reigned for centuries. So, and so it is yeah. just
0: a a failure. I mean, in the end, it's a failure of theology. And and when you see this, uh, you you just recognize, oh, this is just the realm that you know people are working in. Uh, that they're they're trying to they they've missed the whole point of. The New Testament that no, what it means to have the truth in Christ is uh, that is this a philosophical truth? Is this a sociological truth? Well, it's certainly, and this is Milbank's project. You know, this is Radical Orthodoxy's project is uh, that the truth of Christ pertains to all of these realms. Uh, it's not that you you can't undertake any of these projects apart from. Uh, Christian truth. It's not a privatized, exclusive, you know, uh, uh, partition truth at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it's, and it's a, it's not even just an intellectual truth, or it's not a, it's a truth that transforms us holistically. So it's the truth that we enter into.
0: If you had to sum up this conversation, and you've, uh, you're doing this more now than I am. Tell us then what it is that post liberalism or a confessional theology, what it does for us, uh, that in some way we got stuck, and now there is the potential then uh, to move on
1: yeah, I actually I was as I was thinking about our talk today, um, thought of an example, and that's that you know for Lindbeck. He was very much thinking of doctrine as a way of reflecting on communal practices. That's sort of abstract. Uh, What does that mean? But I think in the work of James McClendon, who is lesser known, perhaps, than some of the other people we've been talking about, but uh, a friend of Hauerwas's, and Hauerwas actually touts McClendon's three-volume work on systematic theology as one of the best systematic theologies of of the 20th century, um that McClendon fleshes that out for us. What does it mean for doctrine to be a way of reflecting on uh the communal practices of the Christian community, the church? And so doctrines as those teachings um have to be intimate to us as we are actually living out the life of the church, being Christians, under you know, going theosis, however you want to describe that. And I think this is where radical orthodoxy and at least the descendants of the post-liberals, Harawas and McClendon and others, are very close together. That both of them are describing the need for us to rework who we are in terms of an ontology that has us dependent upon God, but only dependent upon God in and through the body of Christ, which is the church that is given to us
0: that it is and this is uh you know McClendon puts ethics first in his uh in his theology, not because he's prioritizing ethics, but he wants to shake up the whole way that we've done this that uh that knowing christ then is you know christ himself in and we're doing Hebrews here is pictured as obedient and it's in in this holistic mm-hmm. obedience is it is in uh, that you come to know Christ, and apart then from the practices of Christianity, uh, you you in, in a sense you don't know Christ. You, how could you know Christ apart from following Him? In and to be to a follower mm-hmm. of Christ is in some way to put in and practice His obedience. But ironically, that's precisely mm-hmm. what we have in a great deal of fundamentalism, and I think liberalism is, that Yet people imagine that you know Christ apart from following him, apart from putting in to place the practices.
1: Yeah, yeah belief in Christ becomes theoretical. And, and it reduced it becomes Faithfully. an empty
0: category. It, it uh, You could fit anything. Yeah. But what this means, and this is McClendon, uh, and I'm proud to say we as an undergraduate, I had you reading James McClendon. Um, that I think I was introduced. It's not easy stuff necessarily for an undergraduate to get, but I never knew I never knew where else to start uh, because he just uh, in the, the three volumes, ethics. You know, okay, here's the practice, and he's doing a, a narrative theology. He's putting it into you know, in, a, in a beautiful way. Then doctrine. And he himself admits in doctrine his project of of uh framing it all in narrative it, it doesn't quite work, and then in witness the, the picture of how this plays itself out in a socio cultural, you know, understanding. <clears throat> it it is a, a way of doing theology uh that I think takes up I, I think McClendon. Uh, grasped then and, and took this further, he's actually written this in a way that I'm not aware, I'm sure there's many fine works out there that I'm not aware of, but uh, that his seemed to, to grasp this, uh, this project quicker and, and more uh, more completely than anybody else.
1: Well, yeah, and especially for, I mean, McClendon's, you know, those works are over 20 years old. So, especially at the time when he was writing, and that's the
0: you know that's the thing that uh, as you come into this, you you uh, you realize oh this conversation's been going on for some time, and I I think it's a little known conversation that is people just seem to hmm. to be missing it they seem to be uh, failing to grasp uh, that well actually you're you're still dealing with realms and understandings that uh i don't know you know is it that oh we've knocked down those you know that that it's not that uh the one problem has been solved and we've moved on it's i think what we're describing in the end is a paradigm shift for the good i mean that that we've shifted you know this is the thing postmodernism or post modernity really doesn't mean anything other than uh modernity came to an end
1: uh but what mm-hmm. yeah so it'll probably take hundreds of years to work this out in a way where it's i guess so that
0: yeah that <laughs> that it's not going yeah. to filter oh. down to a popular level yeah. yeah that's not very encouraging you know we'll all be dead and gone uh but mcclendon is 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 you know dead and gone um uh, but the I think the legacy of, of that work is we're we're still we're still having to deal, you know, put that we're having to reframe the That's entire right. conversation. How you do that, I, I've uh, you know, it is uh, it is shocking, but I think the this is the thing that, that McClendon, or rather, that Howard does for us. Howarth uh, is kind of a shocking individual. And he puts these things so, you know, he's kind of, uh, uh, his, his way of posing these things. I, in, in a sense, you almost have to encounter uh, uh, somebody like Hauerwas to, to recognize the mm-hmm. stark difference that this makes. McClendon was more of a gentle soul, you know, he's laying this out. And, and uh, uh, I think people may have missed the significance of what he's doing. Uh, but where Horowitz is putting the, the peaceable kingdom and nonviolence front and center, and I think that in the end is what's required because what we're ultimately describing is a violent economy. And I'm afraid that theology and philosophy, as it's worked itself out in modernity, and in this I think Derrida was right it was violent, it is violent, it's inherently violent. Uh, does that mean that's the end of the story? You know, for Dog, the Messiah could never come. Well, no, I think what he missed is that the, the Messiah has come, and he's given us an alternative economy, an alternative way, and it's a nonviolent, peaceable uh, way, of yeah. Epi- yeah. A, a nonviolent epistemology, a nonviolent atonement, uh, a, an ethics that is... Uh, non-violent, a non you know, the whole, you can just go clear through. It's a, a kingdom. A, a nonviolent kingdom. <laughs> it's a kingdom yes. of nonviolence. And that's so I, I really think, you know, even recently I've been dealing with things like uh, male-female, uh, you know, the whole complementarianism. And I think that that's another place that we've missed this. You know, when you talk about the man as mm-hmm. the head of the house, well, what we immediately think of is in terms of power, well, that's that's
1: yes, yeah. We're well, that, that's
0: not the point at yeah. all. Uh, that's sort of like thinking, "Oh, yeah. Christ is the head; like He has all the power." No, when you think of Christ as the head, it, it, it is that here is the the source of love. Here is the source of servitude. Here is the the basis of truth. Uh, it has nothing to do with a kind of power or dominance or. You know submission to uh, power, but it has everything to do with the the a kind of alternative life. And so, as long as that mm-hmm. discussion—I and I think that's just one of many—as long as it's framed under the old framework of power, uh, I, I think we're going to read Paul and we're going to read those sections, and uh, people will continue to argue and uh, you know. Partly, what happens? They break that up. They break that discussion apart from the rest of the New Testament, and don't see. Well, no, this is a part of a a, a, a complete conversion of power. No longer male. You know, if you yeah. go through Paul's picture, and uh, you know, no longer male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, what he's hit upon, male and female are changed up. Uh, the, the genderedness is changed up. Uh, s- slave and free economics is changed up. We're no longer part of a violent economics. Uh, Jew, Gentile, religion, socio cultural understanding is changed up. So that all of that is reframed and, and uh, understood in a different fashion. It's no longer this antagonistic dialectic. Uh, in which the one is pitted against another, but uh, uh, the identity through difference, but there is an underst- a re uh, understanding of all these categories in Christ.
1: Yeah, I think and so I, this is probably a great way to wrap up this talk, but what you're saying is that uh, in a way, this series of podcasts has tried to introduce the work of theology. And so this is how this is where we're at. And this is the kind of things that we should. This is at least how we should be thinking about the issues. And now the the possibilities of what you could address are limitless. It
0: opens up the world to you in, in, in a.
1: And it and it pertains directly to the particulars of what it means to be human. So you just cut straight to that with the uh, the fundamental human relationship. We're we're boys and yeah. girls, <laughs> you know. Um, it you know cuts right to sexuality. It goes right to that psychology. We mentioned it, it. Politics, obviously, because you could build outwards. But economics. What do we do with the things that we've got? Um, and so theology should touch on all of those things. And that's the vision of both radical orthodoxy and at least the theology of like Howard Wass and McLendon and, and their generation of post liberals.
0: And what we've not done, and that, that's not been our job, is to in some way uh, critique the inadequacies. But I think that there is then just this overwhelming pointer toward an alternative understanding. If you, you know, what tends to happen in various readings of this, they get, people get caught up in uh, uh, critiques, and a lot of these critiques are arising still from a modernist frame. And then this they're still missing.